0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com sofa today for details.
0: Five,
1: four, three, two, one. This is Starship Sofa. This is show number 83. Everyone, welcome. Tobias Bukel and Jason Sanford, all on the same bill. Top right as there, so I hope you'll stick around and enjoy the show. Give you a little heads up, what's coming on? Show number 83. Not really an editorial by me. Nothing to say. (laughs) That's a change. Got a poem by a gentleman called Curtis Hilgenberg. Tell you a little bit more about Curtis coming up. We have fiction by Tobias Bacel. Got a little bit of music coming up today as well by Norm Sherman from the Drabblecast. It is a fantastic song. It just knocked my socks off. Look out for that. Got our film talk with Rod Barnett. Looking forward to that. Another slice of fiction comes from Jason Sanford. And we have new titles at the very end as well. So a fun-packed show. So I think we're going to kick straight off with the poem. And just a little heads up about Curtis Hildenberg. Didn't I think, you know, my kind of demograph, what I thought of Starship Sova's audience was probably around, you know, the 30, 45 kind of bracket. In there, it's, you know, where I think Starship Sova's audience is. Got that totally wrong. Curtis come along, 14 years old, youngest guy. Well, up to now, Curtis, I reckon, is one of the youngest ones we've had on the Starship Sover. even just getting in touch with his contact with us. So he sent us this poem along, and it's just fantastic. I got narrated straight away. So I'll give you a little heads up for Curtis. Curtis Hilgenberg, 14-year-old boy, lives in Meadow Vista. He is a webmaster of several websites and podcasts, including BadgerWiki at pbwiki.com. I'll put links under these because I'm shocking at reading them out. And introbang.blogspot.com. He is the type of person that enjoys writing bios about himself as it gives him the opportunity to speak in the third person. He's probably one of the youngest authors of Starship Sova. I think you're right there, Curtis. Can't think of anything just yet. Anyone who's come along and taken your crown? And it's actually funny, you know, years, I send him a note saying, you know, Curtis, and if anyone's got any emails off me, and, you know, you kind of know how I, I write, I kind of write the way I'm thinking. So there's lots of like little full stops after certain sentences, you know, like kind of uh, as if my thoughts are lingering on. <laughs> and I was saying to Curtis, you know, trying to be the, the preacher father type, you know, Curtis, you need to do it like this. You need to, you know, just stick in right, right, right. You're a great lad. But my, like say, my whole emails just littered with all them, you know, and I was saying like, the golden rule, right, right, right. And he come back, cheeky little son. <laughs> Another golden rule, don't over-punctuate. I was like, right, right. clip round the yaho for that. But yes, listen to this, Curtis Hilgenberg.
2: Explanation by Curtis Hilgenberg. Why am I here? Why are you here? I want to go back home. Well, don't we all, you say, so nonchalantly. But you just don't understand. I'm a long way from home, I explain. But you don't know how far it is. You don't get it. I'm farther away than you are. I'm from Mars. Now suddenly you turn away, reaching for something at your side. I've found him, you say. I've really found him. You say that, but do you mean that, I say to the man as an armored car rushes toward me. Two men come for me. One man bags me and throws me in the car. The armored car drove and dumped me in a small room where a man with a bright light shone that little bright light in my eyes, but it scared me, so I ate him and then ran away. And the people outside weren't very happy. So I ran away and found the portal we made to Mars. You know, the one we made out of stacked stones. So I poured it back to Mars just in time to make it to school. And that is why I don't have my homework.
1: Come on, be honest, that's fantastic. That just made me smile from ear to ear. And he sent another one in and I give him a little bit of advice. Well, let me change it. Going to take that one as well, so there you go. Do pop over to Curtis's site and say hello. Next up, Tobias Backell. What a great story this is. Aerophilia. I'll give you a little heads up. Everyone kind of knows Tobias Backell, but Tobias S. Backell is a Caribbean-born science fiction fantasy author who grew up in Grenada, the British and the US Virgin Islands. He has published over 30 short stories in various magazines and anthologies and has written four novels. A limited edition of his latest project, a short story collection called Ties from the New Worlds, is out now from Worm Publishing, and can be found online at tobiasbakell.com. It is narrated today by Rick Stringer. He is the producer of three times Parsec award-winning *Varying Frequencies podcast and the podium book The Failed Cities Monologues which was written by Matt Wallace. He has narrated stories for Pseudopod, Well-Told Tales, The Time Traveller Show, J.C. Hutchins, and Starship Sover. Find out more about Rick at variantfrequencies.com. So, the Starship Sover is very proud to present Aerophilia by Tobias S. Buckell.
3: You know, the thing about zeppelins is that they got a bad rap, Vince says. He's actually twirling a virtual mustache. Not job. I mean, in the famous, oh, the humanity accident, only 35 passengers died out of 97. He steps forward and looks at me critically. Ever heard of a 64% survival rate in any crash, space, or air? He doesn't wait for an answer. He turns around. No, I can't answer him anyway. My mouth is gagged with a rubber ball and strap, and my hands are cuffed. My lips are starting to dry out and stick to the black rubber ball. The key to the handcuffs has been flushed out of the airship through the toilet. It's probably still falling, and will fall for a few hours more until crushed into liquid metal by the deadly atmosphere far below us. It would continue falling, being crushed even smaller until it joined the great diamond core of the gas giant that was Riley. Or so some physicist I once saw quoted in a touristy introduction to Riley had said. Four passengers sitting on the side of the gondola stare at me with wide eyes. their local colonists. Three guys in tuxedos on their way to a party, and a lady in a hoop skirt and purple plastic corset, probably lived all their lives in any one of the aerostat cities on Riley's upper atmospheres. They've certainly never seen a down-on-his-luck spacer like me. Likely because there has never been such a thing as a down-on-his-luck spacer. It's almost oxymoronic. On a planet like this, Vince continues, zeppelins are too useful to ignore. But I think the colonists are missing something. The colonists. They look at me as if I'm crazy. And from their perspective, I can't be too far off. Right? What they've seen with their normal, unaugmented, fleshy eyeballs has been me. And only me. Boarding their dirigible for a regular flight from one city to another. Routine for them. Until I knocked out their pilot... "'took over the airship and reprogrammed the ship's destination "'to somewhere deep into the atmosphere of Riley. "'Nobody try to fly this ship, or call for help, "'or you'll all regret it,' I'd announced. "'Then I'd stuffed a ball gag into my mouth, "'handcuffed myself, and slumped into the corner of the gondola. "'The problem being from my side "'is that my id is a total asshole. "'He hates my guts. "'We split up yesterday.' and he hijacks my skull today in retaliation. So, I'm not really me right now. And no one else can see Vince. He's just a computer-induced hallucination inside my own skull. I work up some spit to try and moisten the ball gag a bit. Drool runs down my lips. And one of the men across from me shakes his head in disgust. Even though Vince is using my own body-wide neural network against me to induce hallucinations and control my motor movement, I can still access some basic functions. I dial out of the airship and make a call. As a spacer, I'm totally cyborged, constantly seeing and interacting with information laid over everything I see. I manage to contact my ex-girlfriend's secretary, Persona. A virtual image pastes itself in the left corner of the inside of my artificial eyes. The persona looks like Susie as I remember her sixty years ago. Blonde, brown eyes, but more digitized. It laughs when it sees me. You look exactly as we remember you, it says. My hopes lift. I need help, I subvocalize. Can I talk to Susie? The secretary mimics sitting back and folding her arms, lifts an eyebrow. Why in the hell would we want to talk to you? I'm in trouble. My sub throat grunts get another disgusted look from the colonists in the actual gondola. In the picture in my head, the secretary leans forward. Somewhere between the two, I can see Vince flickering as he paces around the edge of the gondola, muttering to himself. He passes through one of the colonists like a ghost. "'You're always in trouble, Vincent,' the secretary says. "'Yeah, but now I'm in really deep. I need Susie's help.' A click. Then it's Susie. The real Susie. Hello. The secretary fades away. I try to clear my throat gag and close my eyes. The insides of the gondola disappear, but Susie remains, still staring at me. Susie, I subvocalize. My God. You look... great. She doesn't. She looks really old. Even with aging treatments, she's been sitting in real time for sixty or so years while I skipped out a relativistic few months near the speed of light and tried to build up my financial empire. Compound interest is every light-hugger's friend. You leave a bank account behind for a couple of months in your time reference and come back to your original departure planet rich. I'm hoping those decades soften the memory of my departure. Son of a bitch, Susie says, realizing who I am. I need help, Susie, please. Do you still work for the air guard? She shakes her head. Sixty freaking years, Vincent. Sixty! I'm so sorry. I can explain. But right now I'm handcuffed in the gondola of an airship, and I need your help. Do you realize I've had a whole life since then? A marriage? Kids? Grandkids? I pause. We could talk about this over coffee or something. After you help me? "'If you can call me, you should have called the guard yourself,' Susie says and hangs up. "'I mouth the ball gag for several seconds, then redial. "'It's the secretary. "'She doesn't want to talk to you,' the younger image of Susie says. "'She's really pretty ticked that you even dredged all those old memories back up for her. "'You left her after taking all her money, and even worse— You didn't even tell her you were leaving. You know she would have given you the money if you would have asked. I'm so sorry to be doing this. I sigh around the edges of the rubber ball. I don't know what else to do. My id became a persona inside my own neural network, and now it's taken me over. Well, you really messed her up. She lied, you know. She never actually had a husband or grandkids. She just threw herself into her work. For a while, she became part of an anti-spacer activist group. The secretary leans forward. Look, you could just turn off all your neural devices and go totally normal. Just regular wetware. That's a bit drastic, isn't it? I've been wired since, well, as long as I can remember. I wouldn't be able to make calls check up on info, see floating data chips around me. If I shut it all down, I'd be just like the colonists staring at me. People on Riley manage it all the time. Not everyone is a high-rolling spacer. The secretary smiles. Funny tickly feelings are running up and down my chip-packed spine. I ignore them. And if you buy yourself some time, I imagine I could work the old lady over. "'If you know what I mean,' she winks. "'There are, after all, some very good memories we're dredging up as well.' "'She's gone.' "'It's a bit of a flimsy plan, "'but it beats calling the air guard directly and guaranteeing my arrest. "'Susie might still fly out and rescue us. "'Vince sits next to me. "'I think that's a bad idea,' he says.' I've been trying to keep you occupied and distracted, which is easy, by the way. I didn't want you to think of doing that. Ha! I start getting the codes ready. Just ponder this, Vince says, leaning closer to me. I'm always the one that comes up with the good plans. I always get us out of the bad scrapes on instinct. I always get the girl when you stop overthinking things. You have to trust me. Good plans, my ass. I'd been unaware of my id until he'd started giving me anonymous messages, leaving links to stories about a lost aerostat city that had kept actual gold bars in its bank, now abandoned and waiting for someone to plunder it. My id has gone insane. He'd splintered off into his own personality when I'd started resisting his plan to go down searching the lower atmosphere for this mythical lost city. I'm taking care of us right now. This is all part of a plan. I initiate a shutdown. Vince finally flickers away. It's different going 100% wetware. When I look out the observation windows, I can't see little weather tags telling me where the thermals around us are. People's public ID info sheets don't hover over their heads. But I can wiggle my fingers and move my hands. I rip off the ball gag and take a deep breath, then stand up. The colonists flinch. It's okay, I reassure them. I'm okay now. They don't believe it. I had a software problem, I explain wiping my cracked lips with the sleeve of my dress shirt. My... Personality kind of got messed up and split when the splinter tried to take me over. bit of a glitch in the programming allows that. One of them raises his hand. So which one is in charge now? I am. I'm Vincent. They all chorus. Hi, Vincent. I nod. Vince is gone now, so we're all okay. He was the one that knocked out the pilot and reprogrammed the airship. I'm more normal. One of the colonists leans over the purple-corseted lady and stage whispers, Does this happen to off-worlders often? She shakes her head. So, can we wake the pilot up now? They enthusiastically approve of this course of action. We trudge over to the front of the gondola, where the bank of displays and switches gleam. The pilot is an elderly man with brown hair slumped in the well-padded pilot's seat. A heads-up display flickers green figures over the rolling red clouds of Riley on the windscreen in front of him. This is how the colonists access the layers of information around them. I shake his shoulders, but his head lolls. Other than that, he looks okay. I don't have the ability anymore to ping his health icon. But the lady colonist leans over and pulls her hoop skirt off. She's wearing an elaborate set of lacy knee-length pants underneath. She squeezes in between me and the captain to check his pulse. He's dead, she says. Everyone is looking at me. I've become a murderer. Though I doubt even my id was crazy enough to kill the pilot. Heart attack, probably, the lady says, pushing past me and pulling her hoop skirt back on. How can you tell? I'm a doctor. She sits back down, smooths the skirt out over her legs. It's a small relief. Does anyone here know how to fly this thing? I ask. They all shake their heads. I slump to the floor. I could fly it. But I'd have to reboot my neural network to get that kind of information. And then Vince would return. The airship shakes and several motors whir. What's that? I ask. The doctor looks out the observation windows. The bag is venting. We're dropping. Do you know how to use these manual controls to call the air guard? I ask pointing at the scary rows of controls in front of the dead pilot. If the alternative is plummeting down into the depths of a gas giant, arrest is starting to look good. The doctor looks at me as if I'm stupid. Yes? Then do it! The doctor sits up front, speaking into the arm of the seat near the dead pilot. She's talking to the air guard. "'How far do you think this ship can fall?' I ask the men around me, trying to keep myself from focusing on the sinking feeling in my stomach that tells me we are still descending. "'This particular ship,' says the doctor from up front, "'comes from a line of what used to be tourist ships. They would follow the generator cables of the cities way down into the clouds. She throws a paper brochure at us. It lands on the floor. "'Didn't any of you read the booklets in each of your seats?' I feel around in my pockets to find a crumpled-up ball of paper. Spacers. She stares at me with menace. They loved writing these things down into the clouds. Until the depression hit. Now they're used for more practical things. We don't get many spacers on vacation here on Riley anymore. How long before the air guard gets to us? I ask, trying to deflect the cloud of animosity in the air. My stomach begins to settle. They said an hour. And how long before we would get crushed? The doctor shrugs. Your programmed autopilot seems to be leveling us off. Ah, so maybe we would live. Relieving... I walk forward, peering out of the windows. We're in what looks like a red fog now, the light inside tinted with the color. Everyone looks angry in this kind of lighting, or at least out of breath. Nothing to do but wait for the air guard. The prospect of being arrested doesn't do much for me. I sit down in a funk and continue staring at the shifting hues outside. What are you even doing down here? The doctor asks. Spacers don't even come down to the cities anymore. I turn back to look at her. I'm bankrupt. I thought all spacers were rich, one of the men says. Well, I'm not. There are costs, right? You have to fuel the ship, make repairs, hire crew, find cargo, and most importantly... Invest intelligently. I look around at them. I left here sixty years ago with a couple of thousand in a bank account and some various investments. It was everything I had left after paying for my ship's needs. I had taken the money from Susie, planning to pay her back in spades when I returned. The Depression wiped it all out by the time I came back though if I had come back twenty years earlier, I would have been a multi-billionaire. You're not a very lucky spacer, the doctor observes. I shake my head. No, I'm not. But at least the doctor sounds sympathetic, unlike Vince, who ridiculed me for days straight about it. I left people behind when I skipped out because I was close to broke sixty of your years ago as well. Now I don't even have them. Vince led me down to the floating cities of Riley as a last-ditch effort to save ourselves. Floating ghost cities. He'd been nuts to the end. I'm really sorry for doing this to you guys, I say. The men all nod. It's okay. The doctor stands up. Don't you dare sympathize with him like that! When the air guard rescues us, we're booking charges. All of us. I look. Does he even know any of our names? Did he even bother to check our names before he took us all hostage on this crazy last spacer joyride? I try to recall if I checked their names. I don't think I did. That's right. Didn't even bother, did you? I have nothing to say to that. The man closest to me speaks up. Well, my name is... Don't do that! Don't give him your name! You don't want him showing up at your doorstep one day, do you? Don't forget, he's probably unstable. He's got some sort of implant problem. Just wait until the air guard gets here. Don't talk to him anymore. She sweeps past us all, hoop skirt bouncing, to go use the bathroom. The men look anywhere in the gondola but at me, or at the door to the head. I distract myself similarly by wondering if her waist will suffer the same fate as the keys to my handcuffs. I imagine the carbon-based remains will be compressed into the form of diamonds by the time they reach the core of Riley. Back when Riley was colonized, scientists tried to study what the pressure did to things dropped in Riley's lower atmospheres. But apparently the depression killed the more speculative kinds of exploration like that and any diamond prospectors formed up during the first years of colonizing Riley had quickly turned to finding other ways to make a living, like making airships to trade between the great floating cities. It's a long, quiet hour before the air guard ship snares us. The gondola shakes a bit, and then a long, snaking tube attaches itself to the airlock. My cuffs are still on, so I'm sure that will just make their job easier. Someone knocks on the door to the airlock. The doctor opens it, and Susie walks in. She's frail, but wearing her old blue and red airguard uniform and projecting authority. Get up the chute, she orders the colonist. The men grab the pilot's body and scramble up awkwardly through the tube with it. I watch as the doctor pulls off her hoop skirt. She looks back at me. I start to ask her name, but Susie steps between us and the doctor starts scrambling away. Hi, Susie. You wouldn't believe the strings I had to pull to get here this quick. I had to get back aboard one of my old ships just to come after you. She shakes her head. But thank you so much. I reach out to hug her. She pulls out a stun gun, fires at my chest, and I drop to the floor of the gondola, convulsing. You self-serving asshole! She grabs the ball gag from the corner of the room and ties it back on me. I've had sixty years to despise you. My secretary program, on the other hand, based on a younger version of me, is quite infatuated with you. Well... "'at least my memories of you. "'Susie is quite strong for a ninety-year-old. "'She's hog-tied me with a piece of rope around my ankles and the handcuffs "'and dragged me to the back of the gondola. "'But she came back up with quite a compromise. "'We come get your id, "'which is the real you that we always loved anyway.' I always sensed he was in charge when we were together back then. And then, I get to kill you. She points the stun gun right at my temple. I'll turn you into a vegetable right now, unless you boot your neural network up and give us Vince. I need little convincing. She can have him. I hold up my cuffed hands. Susie grabs at them. A data link opens using the very conductivity of our skin to transmit all the necessary information, and I reboot my entire neural net. All those chips in my spine warm up. Vince appears, looks around, and swears as I allow the data to transmit. He dissolves, fading away in the air in front of my eyes. Susie's body network has him now. He's gone and Susie has a big grin on her face as she lets go of my hands. She headbutts the wall, giving herself a bad bruise on the cheek. "'I'm going to tell them you resisted my attempt to save you,' she says, walking over to the airship controls. She kills all the communications, then takes out her stun gun and fires it into the control panel. Sparks fly. I check. I'm unable to piggyback a signal out of the gondola. That you were crazy right there at the end. They'll believe me, too. You're suicidal and dangerous, and there is no reason for anyone to attempt to come back in here. A trickle of blood runs down the side of her nose as she walks over to the airlock door. You should have told me you were going to leave sixty years ago, Vincent. Or at least invited me aboard your damn ship. I say, and meaning it. It's too late for sorry. I've let some of your gas out on the airbag. You won't be able to rise, but you might be able to float around on the level you're at until you starve or die of dehydration. Goodbye, Vincent. It was so nice to see you again. She gets in the airlock. The tube pulls away and she's gone. The air guard is gone. They're not coming back. It takes the better part of an hour to free myself and stand up. Again, I ripped off the gag. I have my advanced senses, though. I can see thermals outside. I can find out how to fly this airship. Each instrument has a tiny instruction manual icon floating over it. As I sit in the pilot's chair, trying not to freak myself out because he'd only been in it just an hour earlier, Vince appears next to me. Shit! I scream. Relax. I'm not going to hijack you again. You didn't get... I really don't want to end up with those two psychos. Gave them a copy of myself that will self-destruct in a few hours. Wouldn't want to miss out on all the fun here. Me dying? Well, the airbag thing is a problem, of course. But remember when I said you should trust me? You always say that. Who decided to make a run for it 60 years ago when we realized we were almost bankrupt? Me. Right. Now, what you should have done was listen to me. Vince walks around behind me. I told you it was a bad idea. It felt wrong. Didn't it? You wanted to buy an airship. But wouldn't tell me why. I told you to research what happens at the heart of a gas giant. Vince admonishes me from the other side of the chair. You moron! I snap. Most theories propose a giant diamond at the center of the giant, squashed into being by all those pressures at the depth which, if you're thinking of trying to get at it, means we get crushed, too. You know what else? Diamonds really aren't worth all that much these days. Vince pretends hurt. He claps a virtual hand over his chest. Why are you focused on one big diamond? I frown. Every day, these aerostat cities are dumping carbon-based trash that falls downward. "'where it gets crushed. "'But look around you.' "'He points at the roiling cloud we're in, "'and at the massive upwelling thermals. "'Deep down at the hearts, "'they're strong enough to throw almost anything up, "'and no tourist ship has gone this near. "'Civilized cities and easy tourist jaunts "'avoid that kind of turbulence. "'No diamond prospector ever found anything "'when they first came to Riley. "'Even in the upwells,' I say. Yes, Ben says, but that was before almost 70 years of dumping trash into the atmosphere, right? It was virgin then. Humans hadn't been dumping shit into the lower atmospheres yet. I'm dumbfounded. He's got a point. Do you trust me? He asks again. This time, it is from somewhere inside me looking down in the depths of Riley. I've managed to reclaim my id. I want to see this, I whisper as we begin to slide downwards.
4: Better buckle in, then, Vince says in a last fading whisper. There are journeys, and then there are rides, and this was a ride to hell and back,
3: or at least Riley's version of hell. I slipped ever downward to the thermal my former id had identified as the prime upwell spot, trusting my instincts to bring the airship as far down into the depths as had ever been done. We floated through a sea of diamond specks before we smacked the heart of the upwell and rode the thermal. It was like straddling a rocket straight back up. It spit us out high enough that we coasted into the nearest aerostat city with several hundred feet of altitude to spare.
4: We landed, covered, in diamond dust. Several weeks
3: later, I'm standing near the great foam pillars of the courthouse. Susie spots me waiting for her to come out, stops, then walks over. A green and red police stride follows two steps behind her. Hello, Vincent. She doesn't seem too surprised to see me. We've faced each other in court for the past week. But all that's over. The best psychiatrists, lawyers, journalists, and judges have all pored over our plights. I'm acquitted of murder, but my implants have been torn from me so that there's no danger of my id getting free again. And I had to cover court costs. My starship was confiscated and auctioned off. The Riley government took its share of the court costs, air guard rescue fee, taxes, and handed me the rest. I never felt like I got to finish things, I say, or properly apologize. She shakes her head sadly. And even if you do, so what? You're going to leave on your spaceship for any number of years while I wither away here again. You're wasting your time if you think there's anything to rescue with us. I sold it. I don't have a ship anymore. She starts walking away from the courthouse. The droid and I follow her. I would like to give you the money back. With interest. It's almost everything I have left. And then, what are you going to do here on Riley? Buy an airship offers some very hair-raising tours of this world. Famous tours that spacers will come to try from all over. It feels like something I'll be good at. The pit of my stomach agrees with this. Deep down, I've always liked airships. We walk together a little further before she stops. You don't just get forgiveness like that, she says. It just doesn't happen like that. Her sentence involved guided therapy and personality adjustment. That, and a 24-hour police droid for a year until the therapy kicked in fully. I reached over and grabbed her hand, softly, and placed a diamond in it, a memento, I explained. It was lodged in one of the spars when I got back. She pockets it and suddenly laughs. It's a symbolic thing for me. Important. I want to try and undo some of the damage. I'm not sure how to take the laughter. Okay, Vincent. I'm drugged up out of my mind right now. And it makes some sort of warped sense. At the very least, she smiles. I'm no longer interested in killing you. Thank you. It's a start. We part. I walk down a plastic city street, looking up at the great city guy wires that lead to the superstructures of pressurized gas that hold us up. I wonder how hard it would be to get an entire city down to the Diamond Sea, far below my feet.
1: There you go. Just what I love, a fantastic story. Tobias, thank you so much. Sir. Do pop over to Tobias' site and pop over to Rick's site. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So go on, log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to slash sova for your free audiobook. And I got the newsletter from Audible. And the new, I actually look forward to getting this newsletter because it's just giving you like insights in what, what they're doing. And Audible, with their Audible Frontiers, is just all the time putting out fantastic works. Listen to the lineup they've got now. They've got the all time classic that's just come out, the 60th anniversary edition of Earth Abides. By George R. Stewart. You know, like, this tells the story of the fall of civilization from some deadly disease. And it's, it's basically, it's rebirth. You know, it's the first time in audio. This is the granddaddy of post-apocalyptic novels. And it's got a, actually, it's got an introduction by Connie Willis as well. There's a book called Wake by Robert J. Sawyer. And this is like one of those multi-voice recordings. For the first in, this kind of book of a new trilogy by him. Guest editor over at the Audible Frontiers is Ellie Modest Junior. We've had a couple. Of, oh, we've had one story by Ellie Modest. Look out for another one as well. But he picks some of like his stories, and Slan by e. e. Van Vogt. City of Illusions by Ursula K. Le Guin. He picks Lord of Light by Roger Zellini. slaughterhouse Five. What a book that is! Has anyone listened to that? And it's actually narrated by Ethan Hawke. It is just. That's probably one of the best audiobooks I've actually listened to. And time and again. And mind you, time and again, I'm getting excited here. Time and again is one of the best stories. And it's actually in, I didn't realize it was in Audible as well, you know. And it's actually, that's abridged though, four hours, 22 minutes. But what a cracking story that is. It's all to do with kind of time travel. But time travelling, that you know, he's, he's somehow got to think... If I can remember rightly, he's got to think he's way into time travel. Someone will come and say that's not totally wrong, Tony. But I have read it, I promise. And last one he's got up there, Scanners Living in Vain by Cordwina Smith. What can you say about that? So there you go. Some great work in Audible. You know what I mean? It's just one of them things where you can just totally zone out of kind of the harsh realities of this world and just... Mellow away in science fiction. You know, gets a thumbs up for me. Audiblepodcast.com dot slash sofa. There you go. Sign up for your free audio book. Next up is a song. It's just like fantastic. I listened to it from the Travelcast. And please, if there's one, no two, you need to subscribe to two shows this week. My Sofa North show and the Travelcast. The Travelcast is fantastic. Do you know what I mean? It's one of them shows that. It's just a wild mix, and I tell you what was—you kind of realize how kind of wild it is, or how good it is. You know, when I did Lawrence's Larry Santuro's short story, "Little Girl Down the Way," and you know, I had to kind of put me warning out there, and I was very serious. You know, imagine his the shirt and tie behind the microphone, warning: this is. Well, the Drabblecast, Norm Sherman, must have put out like a, a, a short story that kind of was a little bit, you know, too close to the edge. And he says, This story contains foul language. Get on out of here, pansies. <laughs> when you get a warning like that, get on out of here, pansies. You know what I mean? It's just like, am I bothered? Am I really that bothered? But fantastic. I just, honestly, you can't get enough of the Drabblecast. Please subscribe to that show. But don't forget me, So For Notes. But this song, it was just tacked on the end of one of the shows. And I was like, and I think it was, if I'm right in thinking, it was just wrote for, you know, one of the subscribers did like a, a nice big donation. And I think, Norm, if you get he gets a nice donation, he, he writes a song for them. But this song is just, like, amazing, you know what I mean? It's just, like, caught me totally off guard, wasn't expecting it, and loved it. And it's one of those songs where, you know, it's it's hard to kind of place it, but, you know, it's like, it just comes over, kind of like, summer of love, you know, like, hippie stuff, with your girl on, like, a, a, a meadow. Do you know what I mean? Listen to this kind of music. It's got all sorts of things, like, melodies in there. It's just, like, a, such a beautiful song. But these are some of the lines which... Don't go to make a beautiful song. Where did we go wrong? Where did we lose track? Where do you get the plasma cannons hooked into your back? Here's another one. which (laughs) Honestly, this is the most beautiful song you'll have heard in a long while. I saw jet propulsion rocket blast from a cavity in your ass. (laughs) I saw fire and flames coming out of your face waiting to incinerate the whole human race. Come on, eh that that's what love's all about. This is one of the most lovely songs you've heard in a long time and it's fantastic. Norm, you're a star sir.
5: My old pet box turtle Gamera But now he's huge and his eyes shoot laser beams He's got a Japanese submarine in between his front teeth Can you believe he used to be like a son to me? My, 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 they grow up so fast Singing my, 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 they grow up so fast Full of radiation, a nuclear reservoir power plant station. A story i tenderfoot terrapin swimming in trash bins, swimming with uranium mutagens. Transformation, a total mutation. Turtle sent by Satan to destroy every nation. My, 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 they grow up so. Rockets blast from a cavity in your ass. They took you off the ground and up into the sky. You never turned around and you never said goodbye. And it seems just like yesterday I was taking you under my lab. Guess it's true what they sometimes say. They grow up too fast, radioactive, runaway. It is no pity for the people of Tokyo You say it's payback time For all the sludge and slime Dumped in your water flow Oh, where do we go wrong? Where did we lose track? Where'd you get the plasma cannons Hooked into your back? My, my, my They grow up so fast Singing my, my, my They grow up so fast Then suddenly behind you Another die. Your old arch nemesis, Barragan. He used to be a toe gecko back in the day, but then came gamma rays and atom bombs. Now he's bigger than an Amtrak, glowing spikes on his back with some kind of weird-ass rainbow laser beam attack. My, 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 they grow up so fast. Singing, my, my, my they grow up so fast. I saw thunderbolts. Fireballs flashing, 20-ton turtle and a gecko clashing Reptile movie stars, paragon cameras Battle of the century caught on all cameras It seems just like yesterday I was taking you home to my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast, those radioactive runaways Smoke clears away, the city's smashed to hell Paragon's been slain, beside him lies your shell I pray to God above, but keep my eyes on the TV screen If you weren't an abomination, you might still be here with me This is Benjiro Kobita reporting live from Tokyo, where it seems that the two fighting monsters, Gamora and Baragon, have in fact destroyed each other. Cheers can be heard on the streets as survivors celebrate their good fortune. It was a horrendous battle, and most of the city is demolished, but clearly the struggle is over. Fire and flames coming out of your face Waiting to incinerate the whole human race I turned off the TV with tears in my eyes Thinking about the good times and how they fly by And it seems just like yesterday I was taking you home to my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast, those radio I saw jet production rockets blast From a cavity in your ass They took you off the ground up into the sky, you never turned around and you never said goodbye. And it seems just like yesterday I was taking you home to my lap. Guess it's true what they sometimes say. They grow up too fast, those radioactive runaways.
1: There you go, I rest my case. Norm Sherman is the god of podcasting. Norm, that's a great song, that. Thank you so much for letting me play that. Again, pop over to Drabblecast. A great podcast. Right, next up, film talk by Rod Barnett. And Rod was very kind to let... you um, was supposed to go on last week's show, but I kind of emailed Rod and said, do you mind if I just you know knock it back a week if that's okay? So, Rod, thank you so much, sir.
4: One of the most interesting science fiction ideas, as far as I'm concerned, is the concept of the expansion of the human mind, or the expansion of human mental abilities or capabilities. The idea of tapping the hidden potential of the mind to develop amazing powers is a standard trope of the genre, stretching all the way back to the pulp era and resurfacing repeatedly throughout history. Its most recent resurfacing would be this year in Disney's rather limp remake of their Witch Mountain movies, which takes us back to the cinematic origins of this kind of idea. Kind of, really. For science fiction films, the Flashpoint, the match that started the cinematic fire, happened in the 1970s. And we have Stephen King to thank for it. Yes, Carrie was Stephen King's first published novel, and its tale is both science fiction and And horror, in almost equal measure. After Carrie, the cinematic gloves were off and uh, floating. Telekinesis was suddenly a part of the language of horror movies, and it was time to catch that bandwagon and jump aboard before it trundled off the inevitable cliff. It was time to attach invisible wires to objects, fling them around rooms, and marvel at the terror generated by the power of the unleashed mind. It helped... That in Carrie, and most of the follow-ups or rip-offs, the individual slinging deadly things about was a late-blooming teenager suffering through puberty in a way that made the average first menstruation, inopportune hair growth, or voice change seem like a grand day at the park. These movies represented every parent's greatest fear and simultaneously embodied one parental great hope. What mother doesn't wish for their offspring to be able to stand on their own two feet and deal with bullies in a confident, decisive manner? What father doesn't wish for their daughter the ability to fend off slimy grab-handers with a flick of her princess' eyes? Make no mistake. For every nightmare scenario that telekinetic powers conjures up, it offers a similar fantasy of effortless, unstoppable strength with few, if any, restraints. The supernatural powers that Carrie White uses to enact her vengeance on her schoolmates are the daily dream of every picked-upon, mistreated, pushed-around kid on every playground and schoolyard on the planet Earth. It is the ultimate I'll-show-you desire that wells up inside anyone being slapped around by others with strength but no honor. But I'm here today to tell you about an interesting variation on the Carrie theme that cropped up just a few years after both book and film made its telekinetic plunge into theaters around the world. The film is named Patrick, and it takes the unusual step of putting these powers in the hands of a character who first gains our sympathy and then our anger to the point where it becomes almost simultaneous. The beauty of the Australian-produced film Patrick is that it doesn't take the easy path to have you identify with its title character. Instead, it shows him to be what he truly is, A spoiled child in an adult body with no sense of or concern for the harm he does each time he acts out against those around him. Of course, not everyone in the film has his best interests in mind, but that's where things get interesting. The film begins with a pre credit sequence in which we see blonde, curly-haired Patrick murder his mother and her lover by tossing a plugged-in heater into their uh, bathtub. Cutting to several years later, Patrick has become a comatose patient in the private Roger Clinic, run by the rather sadistic Dr. Roger. The doc is keeping his latest coma patient alive to study the effects of various non-standard treatments on his condition. Along comes a young, pretty, and recently separated nurse named Kathy, who takes a job at the clinic after passing through a really tough interview with the prudish head nurse, Matron Cassidy. The matron has no love for her new nurse, but seems to have no love for anyone else either, and appears to fear our boy Patrick. She won't step foot inside his room. Kathy is placed in charge of Patrick's room for the second shift hours. She is obviously sympathetic towards him as he lays bedridden, unable to move or show any measurable brain activity at all. After a few days, something strange occurs, and Nurse Kathy begins to think her patient is trying to talk to her. By telepathically working the keys on a typewriter, Patrick seems to be able to communicate with her, but refuses to repeat these amazing feats for anyone else. These telepathic abilities also allow Patrick to wreak havoc at a distance, which translates into trashing Kathy's new apartment out of anger and burning her estranged husband's hands. Once she realizes what is happening, an earlier near-drowning of her new boyfriend fits the pattern of jealous rage directed at sexually misbehaving women that seems to have started Patrick's story. How far will the lad go before he is stopped? And how do you stop someone capable of tossing you around a room with just the power of his mind? Patrick is a well-regarded science fiction horror film, but not a really well-loved one. Many times I've heard people complain about the fact that almost nothing of a horrific nature takes place in the movie for nearly half of its running time. I can understand this gripe, because if all you're looking for are shock moments, gore, or arch-villainy, this film offers little to sate you. But, if you have the patience to simply watch the film and let it tell its story at its own pace... It's an engrossing piece that creeps under your skin and pulls you into it. The movie is very much from the point of view of Nurse Kathy, as she notices each small clue about Patrick's abilities and begins to communicate with him. I suppose the script was written to carefully introduce the fantastic element slowly in an attempt to slide it past more resistant viewers until they could be caught up in the story. For my money, it works for many reasons, not the least of which is down to the fine craftsmanship involved here. Make no mistake, this is a well-made film. Director Richard Franklin would go on to make two more brilliant thrillers after this one, uh, Road Games and the sequel to Hitchcock's Psycho, before an almost criminal career slide into TV work and only occasional features. That's a real shame, because... Director Franklin clearly knows how to make a suspenseful movie build scene by scene to a satisfying and electrifying climax. He was a great admirer of Hitchcock, and in this film, it truly shows. This movie plays a lot like a film that Hitchcock himself might have directed. Now, the film also has a nice adult sense of reality about its characters' relationships with each other. Kathy is conflicted at the beginning of the story unsure if she should return to her husband, or start an affair with the handsome playboy doctor she meets at a party. She isn't trying to play both sides of the field, but her search for what is best for her is interesting and well-played enough to have kept me interested even without the telekinetic plot. I will admit that the film hovers between being a little too long and being lengthy enough to let its story breathe. I'm on the fence about whether it's overlong for the tale it has to tell, But I have to say that I like the fact that time is spent getting to know the characters well enough to make them more than waiting victims or screaming ciphers. Also, I love the small touches placed throughout the film that pay off if you pay attention, like the flickering sign under Patrick's window and the sound of Matron Cassidy's stocking-clad feet as she sneaks around the clinic with a dire mission in mind. And even if I feel that Brian May's very effective score sounds like Bernard Herman Light, that's not a bad thing at all. And it draws just one more parallel to Alfred Hitchcock. Well, that's it for our trip into the 70s telekinetic film craze, and also a little trip down under to Australia, of course. Um, not sure what I'll cover next, but then I never really am. Always curious to where the science fiction genre will lead me next. If you have any suggestions... Drop me a line or post something on the forum. I'm always poking around there to see what people have got to say. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.
1: I thank you, Rod. Do get one in this month, mind you. (laughs) Two in in one month. So next up is some more fiction, and it comes by Jason Sanford. And this is a great story, this. Jason Sanford has published his fiction in In The Zone, Year's Best Science Fiction 14, Analogue, Austin Scott Cords, Intergalactic Medicine Show and other places. His stories have won a number of awards and honours including the Minnesota State Arts Board Fellowship, and being nominated in the Best Short Fiction category for both British Science Fiction Association Award and the British Fantasy Award. He is also a co-founder of the literary journal Story South, through which he runs the annual Million Writers Award for Best Online Fiction. Learn more about Jason? Go to jasonsanford.com. Today's narration comes from Rich Outfield and Big Anklevich, who've been podcasting speculative fiction short stories together over the last year at Junestief.com. Dot com. When they actually received this story that they're going to narrate now, they just loved it so much. Honestly, like I say, it is a fantastic story. They just wanted to take it like a little bit further make it a more richer experience. So they've added like music and sound effects, and it's just like I say, a fantastic narration. So if you like this one, go over to June Steve because they actually contacted Jason and asked for another story so they could do it themselves. So if you like this one, like I say, go over to June Steve and check out another story. So the Starship's over is very proud to present.
6: When Thorns Are the Tips of Trees by Jason Sanford As I walked the heat-cracked sidewalk in front of Shauna's house, she surprised me by blowing me a kiss from her bedroom window. A kiss I knew she'd never actually give. Even though I was mad at her mother for forbidding Shauna from seeing me, I blew a kiss back, only to have her mother evil-eye me from their garden. I ignored the look and kept walking. Shauna's mom had hated me ever since I held her daughter's hand last month. Never mind that Shauna and I had both been wearing gloves at the time, meaning I hadn't technically touched her skin. When Dad heard of me holding hands, he'd stayed calm and muttered about raging teenage hormones. But to be prudent, the next morning he drove me to the town's pharmacy, where the doc doubled my weekly dose of inhibitor. Better safe than stiff, Dad said with a smirk. But I didn't have time to worry about Shauna, or her mom, or even my dad's lame sexual innuendos. The sun was setting, and it wasn't safe to stay out after dark. Shauna's was the last maintained house on the block. Just down the street, pine trees and kutsu sprawled across abandoned lawns and burned out homes. Amid all this green lay the ruins of Brad's house. The old swing set we played on as kids was tipped over in the corner in the front yard. The reds and blues of its molded polymers faded away, and small pines growing through the frame. The clubhouse we built in the old tree hung half-rotten, the tree itself almost buried in a sea of kudzu vines. I sneaked around to the backyard, where the grass looked like prairie, and the second-story windows broken by last year's hailstorm hadn't been replaced. The only place the weeds and kudzu and pines hadn't invaded was the small, well-trimmed spot in the middle of the backyard where a single thorn tree grew. The lights were on in Brad's house, and I watched his father's silhouette pace around the living room. I figured he was too drunk to notice me, but when I tried sneaking into the yard, Brad's old German shepherd barked and chased me back out. But then the dog recognized me. Sarge! I whispered. Sarge patted over and whined as he licked my face. And then he walked back to the thorn tree and laid down under its scraggy branches. I sneaked across the yard and crouched behind the thorn tree. The tree, two meters tall, with silver branches and needles crooking left and right like frozen lightning, was sickly and dangerously thin. When I pulled off my gloves and grabbed a needle, it shattered with a musical chime. Sarge whined from the dusty groove beside the tree trunk where he obviously spent most of his time being more careful i pushed my index finger onto another needle a drop of blood ran onto the needle as cold rushed through my veins hello miles brad said emerging from the fog of too much time alone
0: do i even want to know how long it's
6: been since your last visit two months i said feeling both guilty and relieved that brad still seemed so fresh Too often, Thorn's memories and personalities stiffened and decayed as they were left alone for long periods of time. Brad laughed (laughs) at my guilt and relief, the same high-pitched cackle he'd used when we were kids. Not, of course, that I actually heard him. When talking to Thorns, it was best to keep your eyes closed. That way your mind turned the thoughts and feelings into words. With eyes closed, the person might almost be sitting next to you. Almost.
0: "'So So what what made made you you finally finally
6: visit?' Brad asked. "'I started to make up some excuse, but it's pointless to lie to a thorn. "'Brad knew I hated seeing him in this situation. "'Eline was mad at me,' I finally confessed. "'Wouldn't speak to me unless I checked on you.' "'Brad smiled. No one really cared for him anymore. "'His mother moved away last year, wanting to be near the safety of a big city, "'and his father drank too much and barely got by.'
0: He only talks to me when he's almost comatose I can taste the alcohol in his blood Never tells me about his life Just jabs his hand over and over on my needles.
6: For a moment, I opened my eyes and glanced at the living room window Where Brad's father sat drinking a beer As I shifted, the needle in my finger broke I pulled the tip out of my skin and found another needle to impale myself on
0: You're really brittle, I said The water was cut off a while back Dad
6: can't pay the bill I cursed I should have checked on him before this What with the drought we've been having I told Brad to wait Then grabbed an old bucket and sneaked back to Shauna's house Shauna's mom was inside But the sprinkler in her garden still ran I filled the bucket and returned to Brad Flooding his roots Sarge whined and climbed out of his hole Before the water washed in I thought I saw the glint of bones there But I refused to look close enough to find out I made several more trips Before Brad had enough water then stabbed my finger again Even though the sun was setting and I needed to get home I opened my memories to the story Eileen had created just for Brad A haunted tale of lovers kept from one another by cruel faith Brad cried in my mind as he listened Even though I'd heard many of Eileen's stories, this was her best yet When I was done, Brad thanked me and said to give his best to Eileen. When I reached home, I wanted to tell Eileen how much Brad had loved the story. However, it was already nighttime, and shrieks and perverse giggles rose from the fields behind our house. Not daring to find out what waited in that dark, I rushed inside and locked the door behind me. The next day, I worked with my dad tossing bags of mulch and manure on the back of our flatbed truck as the sun climbed hot into the sky. We were landscaping the Memorial Grove in the rich part of town. Even though it was still morning, the heat swamped me as I sweated through my long sleeve shirt and gloves. I'd strip them off in a second if we were home, but people in this part of town would freak if I showed skin and Dad might lose this job. Couldn't risk that with work so hard to come by. After I finished unloading, my dad patted me on the back, a rare touch, even in his gloves, and told me to work on the trees in this area. He'd drive to the other side of the grove and deal with matters there. I nodded knowingly. Mrs. Blondheim, the fanatical town matriarch whose money maintained this grove, had complained about two new trees from Thorndy who'd sneaked into the park last week. She wanted them removed. I hated killing thorn trees, so my father always handled that chore. After my dad drove off, I added the mulch around the tree trunks and dragged fresh bags deeper into the grove until I couldn't see anything except the glow of hundreds of silver trunks and branches and thorns. All the trees were at their full growth of two meters, a height they'd achieved in the explosion of growth right after death. Near the center of the grove, I accidentally brushed against an old tree, and a thorn stabbed through my shirt. Jackie, a cute-faced nine-year-old who'd turned thorns several decades ago, said hello. Hello. The fogginess of her thoughts told me no one had talked to her in years. Not wanting to be rude, I held my bleeding arm against her long enough to say hello back.
4: Have you seen my doll anywhere? She asked. Don't give it to me it. She'll be mad if I lose it.
6: I didn't know what to say. How do you explain to a child that can't grow up, or even change, that her mother was long dead? That the doll had existed only in her mother's mind, and with her mother gone, there's no way to find it. Because of the thorn connection, for the briefest moments, Jackie seemed to understand what I was thinking.
4: My mother's not dead!
6: She cried before the built-up static of a hundred years returned her to the fresh-faced nine-year-old she'd been moments before.
4: Have you seen my doll?
6: She asked as innocently as before. No, I told her gently, but I'll keep an eye out. I then pulled my arm away and wiped off the blood before returning to work. At lunchtime, I sat down in the middle of the grove and ate my sandwich. The wind blew through the silver trees to the sound of a thousand begging whispers, but I resisted the urge to talk to any of them. I thought about visiting Mom's tree, but decided to wait until I was off work in case Mrs. Blondheim came by. Mom turned thorn when I was nine. Even though we hadn't the money to put her in a fancy grove like this, the thought of Mom growing here had obsessed me. Dad tried to tell me that Mom was dead, that her thorn tree was merely an echo of Mom's soul. But I begged him without stop for days until he made a deal with Mrs. Blondheim, trading a cut in his pay in return for her taking Mom's tree. At the time I'd been thrilled. Now, I wonder if I did the right thing. I also wondered about the people who created the phage responsible for all this. A few fanatics like Mrs. Blondheim still praised the gene de virus as creators for giving beauty and eternal life to our world. Most, though, cursed them as simple and terrorists. Whatever the intention, the phage had removed the most basic aspect of human culture, touch. Almost 90% of humanity carried the phage. But it was only activated if you touched someone with the same phage combination. Since the phage continually changed versions like a madly spinning lock, the odds that touching any one person would turn you thorn were not extremely high. However, a person you could safely touch one day might be untouchable the next. I thought about Shauna. Despite the treatments my father gave me, I wanted so bad to touch her, to hold her, to kiss her. If we were married, maybe we could afford to be tested to find a safe day or two in which to touch. If she bore my child, it would be safe for her to touch the baby as long as she breastfed the child and shared the same phage combinations, but I wouldn't be allowed such tenderness. Maybe someday my child and I could be tested so we could share a hug like my father and I did after Mom died. But as I constructed my life to come, I shook my head. The people who made this curse deserved the worst hell humanity could ever create. Maybe that was their intention. I finished my work by four and drove home with Dad, trying not to notice the crystalline dust coating his pants. He hated killing thorns, and would probably retire to the living room tonight to watch old movies and drink whiskey. After dinner, I checked the solar panels on the roof and the batteries in the basement, then reset the motion detectors and fluorescence. Once everything checked okay, and with darkness still an hour away, I figured I had enough time to visit Eileen. I grabbed my shotgun and told Dad I'd be back by sunset. Unlike most thorn trees, her crystalline limbs shone with a faint blue hue. While Aline and I had been friends since childhood, I'd only gotten to know her after she and Brad ran away at age 13. Brad returned nine months later, infected and nearing his end. No one knew where Aline was until I found her tree growing on our property. She later told me she'd been trying to reach Brad when her guts exploded and she fell to the dirt, screaming and begging for more time. I sat beneath Aline's limbs, closed my eyes and eased my palm onto a thorn she suddenly appeared beside me smiling then leaned over and hugged me while I knew the forbidden touch existed only in my mind I still shivered with excitement I was also amazed at how clear the connection with Eileen was she rarely showed the fogginess most thorns fell into after a few hours alone Even my father, who refused to talk to any thorns, including Mom, had said hello to Eileen once, remarking later that she was indeed different. He'd also noticed that a few of Eileen's thorns still appeared to be growing, something most thorn trees stopped doing shortly after their first burst of creation.
7: How's Brad?
6: She asked. I opened my memories of Brad. Eileen frowned when she saw that Brad's father hadn't been watering him. Thorn trees needed more water than ordinary trees to survive. Since the drought began, I'd hauled water to Aline twice a week. It's my fault, I stammered. I didn't know his father would get his water cut off, but I'll stop by and water him from now on. Aline thanked me.
7: Anything new with Shauna?
6: She asked. She blew a kiss at me today. But her mom's still mad at me for holding her gloved hand. (laughs) Eileen laughed.
7: (laughs) That'll make Shauna want you even more. Nothing turns a girl on like a bad boy.
6: I started to question if Eileen was the best one to give advice about a bad boy, since Brad had turned her thorn. But I liked Eileen too much to say that. Of course, since our emotions and thoughts were coursing as one through my veins, she knew what I was thinking almost before I did. She laughed then cocked her head sideways in my mind.
7: For what it's worth, Mr. Miles Stanton, you're too nice a guy to ever be bad. But it'll still help if Shauna sees you as forbidden fruit. Not that what you feel for her is anything more than base horniness and mild infatuation.
6: I sighed. It was pointless to argue with her over what I felt or didn't feel towards Shauna. Because Aline would simply say she saw my motives with more clarity than I could ever muster. Still, it irritated for Aline to dismiss so easily my love for Shauna. Aline and I then talked about her story and Brad's reaction to it. Back in school, Aline had been the best writer around, with some of her romances picked up by the larger net scenes. She still created stories, but now Brad and I were her entire audience. I'd once tried to write the stories down, but the pictures she crafted in my head refused to match any words I knew. I asked Aline if she had any new stories. In response, she sang a beautiful tale of a princess lost in a big city. But halfway through the story, just as the princess was about to find the magic key to take her home, Aline stopped.
7: Someone's near us,
6: she whispered in panic. I tried to wake up, but Aline's thorn trance was so strong I couldn't wake. Suddenly, Aline's trunk vibrated and the thorn in my palm shattered. I fell back into the dirt with a start. When I looked up, the sky above was dark except for a few moonlit clouds scudding by. I jumped up, afraid. The only people out at night were Thorndy. Aline's limbs and trunk glowed with the slightest of bioluminescence. I cursed softly, grabbing my shotgun off the ground as I wished I'd brought my full-spectrum flashlight. It wouldn't stop determined Thorndy, but it might scare them. Being killed rarely scared Thorndy. Pain usually did. I edged away from Eileen until I reached the dirt road. The road ran between my father's fields and the scrub forest that had grown up on the abandoned suburban lands. Perfect place for an ambush. Still I had no choice. I ran down the road as fast and quiet as I could. I saw the porch lights of home, saw my father standing outside looking for me, and I started to relax. Suddenly, three people stepped from the dark shadow beneath the tree. I turned to run, but more people surrounded me. I aimed the shotgun at a woman standing in front of me. She was half naked, her breasts showing the faint glowing streaks of infection, snaking through her body. Hold me. She moaned seductively before laughing. (laughs) One of the men next to her giggled and hugged the woman. He was naked, as were most of the others around me. The phage drove Thorndy almost insane <laughs> with a desire to touch other people. But what made the man stand out were the tattoos of numbers across his chest and arms. Prime numbers and base pairs, quadratic equations, and Einstein's famous E equals MC squared. The tattoo's dyes had attracted the phage infection, so the numbers glowed faintly as he moved. I had never seen this many Thorndy at once. I aimed the shotgun from one to the next. If I shot one, the others would be on me before I could pump another shell into the chamber. One of the Thorndi reached for me, but the tattooed number man pulled him back.
0: My apology, the number man said. The fate screams at us during end stage, especially around uninfected like you. I nodded in false
6: sympathy. I understand. Now, if you'll just get out of my way...
0: The group tightened around me. First, I'm curious about the thorn tree you were talking to a few moments ago, the man said. She's a friend. I
6: take care of her. That obviously wasn't what the numbered man wanted to know. But before he could be more specific, the half-naked woman beside him jumped at me. I fired the shotgun at her chest seeing an afterimage of blood and glowing tissue imploding as the numbered man screamed and tried in vain to stop the other Thorndi from attacking me. I knocked one thorn die away with the gun's butt, dodged another, and started to run when someone grabbed my right leg. I stumbled to the ground, trying to pump the next round in the chamber, but the others were almost on me. Suddenly, a shotgun blast rent the air, then another. Then, a third. I rolled over to find my father shooting the thorn die. I grabbed my own gun and crawled over to him. By the time I'd pumped a new shell, the remaining thorn die were gone. My last glimpse being the number man as he bolted through the darkness. The shot ones screamed on the ground as their torn bodies raced to take root before death. Come on! Dad yelled as he grabbed my arm and dragged me to the house. There's too many of them. We ran as fast as we could, still hearing the yelling and screaming even as we bolted the front door. Once my father made sure the thorn die weren't attacking the house, he grabbed my face in his ungloved hands and asked if I was
0: okay. Did they touch you? Did their blood spatter on you?
6: I shook my head, shocked at my father touching me for only the second time in my life. He asked again if they touched me, but all I could think about was how warm his flesh felt on mine. I tried to remember if any of the Thorndy had touched me. The one who'd grabbed me had only gotten a hold of my pants and boots. And I didn't see any of their blood on me, but maybe someone had touched me. I, I couldn't be sure. Dad hugged me tight and mumbled a prayer as he picked up his shotgun.
0: I'll stand first, watch,
6: he said. Outside, the screaming continued as the wounded Thorndy rooted their damned bodies to the ground. The sun rose silent, the wounded thorn dye having truly died, the phage rebuilding their bodies into silicon and cellulose. Now that the sun was up, the thorn seedlings would grow quickly, reaching their full height within days as their bodies and sunlight were absorbed by a matrix a hundred times as efficient as a leafy plant's chlorophyll. As I walked around our house, I wondered where the other thorn dye had holed up. Once you were infected with an active phage, exposure to the sun sped up the painful change, which was why Thorndi avoided sunlight and houses equipped with full-spectrum spotlights. Dad was hungover from drinking too much last night. He also felt guilty about being too drunk to realize I hadn't come back by dark, and worried that I'd gotten an active phage from either the Thorndi or his own touch. He opened our safe and took out all the money we had saved we drove downtown to the pharmacy where Dad explained what had happened. The doc seemed sympathetic.
7: You need to tell the sheriff about this,
6: she said, as she took the money from Dad's gloved hand and counted it. I knew we didn't have enough for a single test, let alone two, but to my surprise, the doc handed back some of the money and told me to step over for my blood sample. Dad wasn't getting a test, even though he'd touched me. I protested, but the doc whispered, shut up and act like a man. Odds are you'll have the same results, she said. The test took four hours to run, so Dad and I walked down to the sheriff's office. Sheriff Alice Coffey said she'd heard reports of several large Thorndyke groups moving through the area.
2: There have been a few reports like this over the last few months, she said. Groups of Thorndyke move through an area and attack any memorial groves they find. Evidently, they've been undergoing some type of revival-like movement which preaches that memorial groves are sinful. But it's difficult to get specifics on what they're up to.
6: The sheriff suggested we move closer to town until this passed, but Dad said we'd be fine. Then we drove up town and landscaped the memorial grove until noon, then drove back to the pharmacy. I tried to stay calm while we waited for the dog, but my gut clenched and I could barely breathe. When she told me I was fine... My body shook so hard that Dad had to help me stand out of my chair. Figuring that I needed some time alone, Dad said he'd finish landscaping the grove. I drove over to Shauna's house, needing to talk to someone, but her mother eyed me suspiciously and said she'd gone shopping. I then drove home. I could see the thorn-dye bodies near the fields. They looked like shrunken mummies, each desiccated body centered on a half-meter nub of silver reaching for the sun. Still needing to talk, I walked over to Aline, but words were worthless for what I found. Aline's trunk was severed, almost all of her limbs and thorns destroyed. A single limb remained, attached to a bare sliver of a trunk half dug out of the ground. Crouching beside her, I gingerly pressed my finger to one of her remaining thorns. She appeared in my mind, hazy, delirious, but alive at first she couldn't remember who I was, but then she accessed her memories and her remaining branch and smiled at me. She said the Thorndi attacked her last night, that they broke her apart piece by piece as they giggled and impaled themselves on her needles. I ran home and returned with my work tools. I carefully dug up Aline's roots, the shovel cracking through her sun-bleached bones, Then I wrapped her roots in a wet burlap sack and carried her to our greenhouse. I fussed over Aline for the rest of the day. Dad joined me when he arrived home. We placed her under the grow lights in the greenhouse behind our house, soaked her in nutrient-rich soil, and did everything to keep her from dying. Dad figured it was touch-and-go but said she might pull through. It's weird that thorn died doing this, he said later as we sat on the porch watching the sunset. I held my shotgun while an automatic rifle I'd never seen before rested
0: on Dad's lap. I don't understand why they're attacking the memorial groves. I mean, they'll all be trees in a few weeks or months. Why attack their own? Dad said that as
6: he'd left town, the sheriff and the fire departments were preparing for the worst and had called up their auxiliary officers. The National Guard was also out. But Dad and I didn't get hit that night. On the horizon, we saw fires in the direction of town and heard a number of gunshots. If the phones and general nets had still been up, we'd have known what was happening. But they'd been gone for the last decade in this part of the state, and the security nets were so overloaded we couldn't log on. So we sat on the porch all night long, slapping mosquitoes and waiting for first light. The next morning, the smell of smoke strangled the air as Dad and I drove to town. We first rode through the outlying subdivision so I could check on Shauna. We found her and Brad's houses burned to the ground. There was no sign of Shauna and her family, but one of their neighbors said Shauna and her mother had been hurt and were in the hospital downtown. When I walked next door to Brad's house, I found his father's charred body in what had been the living room. Brad's old German shepherd, Sarge, lay dead near the body, as if he'd been trying to protect his master. Out back, Brad's tree looked like it had survived, but when I touched a thorn to give Brad the bad news, the crystalline structure shattered to shards. Dad shook his head and said the fire's heat must have killed Brad, too. While I cried, Dad patted me on the shoulder with his gloved hand. I understood that Even with Brad's death, it wasn't worth us risking another touch. We buried Brad's father and Sarge beside Brad, and I said a few words, telling Brad how much I'd miss him, how much Eline loved him. We then drove to town. Burned barricades blocked most of the roads, with dozens of Thorndyte bodies laying around, some trying to root in the asphalt of Main Street. The National Guard still manned the barricades, and Dad didn't think we'd be let in. But to our surprise, a weary sergeant told us to go straight to the sheriff's office. Turned out, the Thorndyke attack on the barricades and houses, no matter how bloody, had only been a diversion. A larger group attacked the town's memorial groves, smashing machetes and axes through the silver trees. Two groves in the poor outlying parts of town were totally destroyed. Every tree missing branches and thorns, while the rich memorial grove Dad and I worked on had been partially damaged. We found the sheriff near several of the grove's oldest thorn trees, all of whom were Blondheim relatives. The old trees had half their branches hacked off.
2: Hundreds of them attacked the grove,
6: Sheriff Coffey said,
2: led by some thorn die named Chance with glowing number tattoos on his skin. Security nets say he used to be a math professor before the last university shut down. Anyway, we beat them off before they torched the whole grove. But instead of being content at that, Mrs. Blondheim's been screaming at me all morning for not doing more.
6: At the mention of the Thorndy with the tattoos, I told Sheriff Coffey that he'd also attacked me. But she was distracted by the return of Mrs. Blondheim, who yelled at my dad to save her trees. We inspected them, several were obviously goners, while a handful might be saved with quick action. I started to tell Mrs. Blondheim that no matter what we did, the trees had already lost any memories stored in their severed branches. But a stern look from Dad made me hush. I looked around the now unrecognizable grove, located Mom's tree, and went to talk with her while Dad and the sheriff hashed things out with Mrs. Blondheim. Mom was happy to see me, but then she was always happy now that she was a thorn. I told her about Eileen and the grove being attacked and how Brad and his father were dead, at which point I broke down and cried. Mom held me tight and told me to hush, that everything would be alright. She talked just like when I was a child suffering from a terrible nightmare. Once I finished crying, she asked how Brad and Eileen were. I stared at her deep, beautiful blue eyes and saw myself reflected back as the child she'd known before she turned. To mom, I'd never grow up because she couldn't change. The memories and soul burned hard and static and unbending into the tree's crystal structure. No matter what I did in life, mom would forever be the same person as when she died. Even though I hated to lie... I told her Brad and Aline were okay.
2: That's good, she said. Everyone needs best friends.
6: Dad and I spent the rest of the day shoring up injured trees in the grove. By lunchtime, a large crowd of townsfolk had gathered, with people checking on the trees of relatives and friends or trying to help me and Dad? A National Guard captain stopped by at one point and almost started a riot when he suggested people pull back to the center of town tonight where it'd be easier to protect against the next attack instead of defending the Memorial Grove. Several townsfolk actually pulled guns on the captain until Sheriff Coffey calmed things down by saying we'd defend everyone in town including the thorn trees. When dusk was a few hours away, Dad loaded our tools in the truck and said we needed to get going. Sheriff Coffey urged us to stay in town, offering to let us room in her house. Dad thanked her, but said we'd be fine at home. As we drove away, we passed neighbors and friends preparing to defend the town and the memorial grove. I felt so ashamed at leaving that I sunk down in the seat to hide. I asked Dad why we couldn't stay in town, I wanted to defend Shauna, who was still unconscious in the hospital. I wanted to defend Mom's tree. I wanted to stand with my neighbors. But Dad said that sometimes it's best not to do what everyone else does, and left it at that. Over the next few days, the Thorndi attacked the town two more times. Dad and I took turns guarding our house at night. In the morning, we drove to town and worked at saving the trees. Sheriff Coffey said the security nets reported attacks on memorial groves in several nearby towns and cities. Once the thorn dye destroyed all the groves in a town, they tended to leave the remaining townsfolk alone. On the third day, I was finally allowed to see Shauna, who was recovering from a nasty hit she'd taken to the head. For once, her mother didn't shoo me away. I blew a kiss at Shauna and told her to get well. Shauna smiled from her hospital bed and reached a bare hand out for me, missing my arm by a hair. Her mother giggled nervously and told me Shauna was still delirious.
5: She'll be all right,
6: she muttered over and over.
5: She'll be all right. She'll be all right.
6: When Dad and I returned home, I ran to the greenhouse to check on Eileen. She looked much better, with a number of needles budding from her trunk and remaining limb. I carefully pricked my palm.
7: She's infected,
6: Aline said with a frown.
7: What? Shauna, she's infected. That's That's why she she tried tried to grab you.
6: you. I nodded. Obviously, Aline knew more than I did about how infected people acted. I tried to feel sorry for both Shauna and myself at the news, but after all the death and pain of the last few days, I couldn't move past weary numbness. How are you feeling? I asked.
7: Better. It's It's funny how all that that hacking and cutting cutting didn't hurt. Just just left me me confused confused for a bit. bit.
6: I smiled. I've been helping Aline remember certain things, like Brad, giving her some of my own memories to replace what she was missing. Each new memory expanded the buds on her body. "'Eline and I also talked about Brad's burial. "'She was trying to create words to put on his tombstone. "'I told her I'd carve the stone once all the craziness calmed down. "'Before I left, Eline mentioned that she'd spoken with Chance, "'the numbered Thorndy who'd hacked her to pieces.
7: "'He was extremely sad at hurting me, but said one day I'd understand. "'He also asked for your forgiveness.' I was a little confused by then, but I'm pretty sure he asked for your forgiveness, not mine, even though I was the one being torn apart.
6: I asked Aline why Chance hadn't finished the job and killed her. Aline didn't know. She then told me to be careful.
7: They're determined, she said. Nothing scarier in the world than a determined person. (laughs)
6: That night, Dad and I sat on the porch. There was only silence from town, the National Guard's full-spectrum spotlights casting a hazy glow above the pines and oaks on the horizon. Dad sat quietly, counting his ammunition, when we heard a giggle from the (laughs) darkness before us.
0: You don't want to do this, Dad yelled. We ain't in your way. I agree, a voice called back. And I don't want to do this. "'But I do want to talk. Will you kill your spotlights?' "'I started to
6: say hell no, but Dad waved for me to go do it. "'I walked to the house and threw the switch for the front spotlights. "'However, I left the lights shining in the greenhouse out back. "'I didn't want these bastards to get near Eileen. "'I expected Dad to be mad at me for that, "'but he merely nodded in agreement when I returned to the porch. "'As our eyes grew used to the dark,' We saw dozens of faintly glowing Thorndi standing in the tree line. One thorndye walked forward. He stopped a few meters from the porch, glowing numbers covering
0: his skin. You're Chance, I assume, Dad said. You should know I'm pretty mad at what you did to Aline, and almost did to my son. Chance shrugged. I tried to stop them from attacking your son, but they, they wouldn't listen. I, I, anyway, I, I don't want to talk about all that. I'm wondering why you two aren't in town. Not our fight, Dad said. But I've seen you working in the memorial grove. Dad thought for a moment. I'm a gardener. I always have been. Helping the trees helps people feel better about those they've lost. But that doesn't mean I'm going to die defending the damn things. Chance smiled and clapped his hands. Exactly. That's what people miss. Those trees are just an unchanging echo of the person they used to be. Many of us thorn die, believe the worst hell we'll ever experience is being trapped for hundreds of years as we are at the moment we die. Kept like an old photo or video. Only taken out when someone wants to revisit old memories.
6: Dad didn't say anything. But I could see he agreed with Chance's words. What about your wife's tree? Chance asked. Dad bristled at the mention of Mom and shifted the rifle in his hand.
0: My wife is dead, Mr. Chance. And I don't appreciate you dredging up our private affairs.
6: Chance giggled
0: nervously. (laughs) Quite right, he said. That's exactly right. We won't be bothering you or your son, assuming you stay out of the fight. We'll still be working in the grove each day, Dad said. I wouldn't expect anything less. Chance thanked Dad and I, then
6: turned and walked back to the tree line. He was already there when I jumped off the porch and ran after him. Wait! I yelled. Why didn't you kill Aline? Chance turned in the dark. I couldn't see his face, only the
0: glowing numbers across his arms and chest. Because we weren't trying to kill her, he said. We were helping her. None of us are the person we were yesterday. We're only truly alive as long as we keep growing. And sometimes to grow, you must lose something. You of all people should understand that. I protested,
6: wanting more explanation. But several of the (laughs) Thorndy in the darkness around me giggled in warning. I ran back to the porch as Chance laughed. In the morning, I talked with Aline, telling her everything that Chance said. Aline seemed to have improved even more overnight, with dozens of needle buds sprouting and several of her larger needles thickening into small branches. I'd never seen a thorn tree bounce back so quickly from near death, and Aline blushed at my compliment. Chance might be right, Aline said.
7: I feel so alive right now, like anything is possible.
6: However, whatever Dad and I were doing right for Aline wasn't working for the trees in the memorial grove. Even though the thorn die hadn't attacked overnight, several more trees had succumbed to shock from previous injuries. Dad and I worked the best we could, splicing busted limbs and applying nutrients to gashes and cuts. But he told me few of the injured trees would survive. It was almost as if they lacked the will to live. I felt sorry for the dying trees, and when I realized one was the young girl who'd said hello to me the other day, I touched her needles, but her thoughts were so confused and diffuse that there was little consciousness left to comfort. I spent lunchtime with Mom, telling her about how good Aline was doing, about what Chance had told us. Of course, Mom forgot my words shortly after I spoke them. I wondered if I should do like Chance and cut off some of Mom's branches and thorns, force her to grow new memories in life. But I was too weak. I couldn't do that to Mom. As she hugged me farewell and said to watch after Dad, someone yanked me off her thorn. I fell back into the sun and stared up at the angry face of Mrs. Blondheim.
0: Get back to work! She yelled. How dare you waste time when my trees are dying!
6: I tried to tell her that the injured trees were going to die no matter what we did, because they stopped living years ago. But my back talk only made Mrs. Blondheim angrier. She began hitting me with her cane, telling me to go to to work. When Dad and the sheriff walked up, Dad calmly grabbed Mrs. Blondheim's cane in midair as it was about to strike me again. How dare you! Mrs. Blondheim spat at Dad. Dad yanked the cane away from her and handed it to the sheriff. We're
0: done here. He said. Sheriff, if you need us, we'll be at our house. Mrs. Blondheim stared in horror at Dad. You will get back to work, or I'll have your wife's tree dug up. I'll hack it down like those scum did to the other trees.
6: Dad glanced at Mom's tree, then nodded sadly.
0: My wife died a long time ago, he said. There's nothing you can do to hurt her.
6: Then he led me away. Mrs. Blondheim screamed at Sheriff Coffee to arrest us but the sheriff ignored her. Other people who had heard Mrs. Blondheim's outburst walked away, shaking their heads. Two days later, the Thorndye attacked the grove a final time. A few townsfolk still fought back, but the sheriff and the National Guard kept their people away from the grove, instead making their stand between the Thorndye and the living part of the town. As the sheriff told us later, there comes a point when you have to decide what's worth dying for. And for Alice Coffey, the dead weren't worth any more dying. The next morning, Dad and I walked through the splinters of the memorial grove. We found Mom's tree missing most her branches. I tried to talk to Mom, to see if she was still inside, fighting for her life like Aline had done. But all I felt was silence. We dug up her bones from beneath the roots and buried her alongside Brad and his father. Dad said Brad's old backyard would make for a good burial ground. I agreed and drove back to our farm where I found Aline's bones. I carried them back and buried her next to Brad. I then drove to the hospital. Shauna was in a darkened isolation room. Her mom was talking to Mrs. Blondheim about planting Shauna in the rebuilt Memorial Grove. I tried to convince Shauna's mom not to do that. To instead let Shauna out of isolation. To enjoy her remaining months of life. And when she's dead, don't let her stay the same. Cut off her branches, force her to grow, and change. She'll thank you for it one day. But Shauna's mom and Mrs. Blondheim merely looked in horror at my suggestion. As if I'd told them to murder Shauna in her sleep. I started to argue... But realized there are people you don't waste time arguing with. So I told Shauna through the isolation door that I loved her, then walked away. I finished carving the tombstones the following spring, taking extra care with the letters of Eileen's tribute to each person, because she refused to create words for her own bones. I simply wrote the words, A FRIEND, on her burial marker. I could tell she was pleased with that. Even though the thorn continued to attack memorial groves across the region, none ever again bothered Aline. When she was big enough, I planted her beside our porch so I could talk with her every day. Aline once again glowed a faint blue. And even though I hated the idea of doing so, I promised Eileen that if she ever became stuck in who and what she was, I'd cut off some of her branches and thorns. Just so you can grow again, I told her with a smile. But I didn't have to worry about that for now. As I sat with my palm on Eileen's needles, we shivered to the faint chill wind and listened to the crickets humming and watched the stars washing the sky. Feeling bold, I asked Aline what made her want to live on and on. She laughed and (laughs) hugged me and kissed me on the lips of my mind until I forgot all about my question and simply kissed her back. ¶¶
1: Hats off to June Steve and Jason Sanford. Like I said, there's links on site. Please pop over to both their sites. Thank you so much, everyone. Last up then is new titles. Three new titles today. And actually, they're all by the same publisher, Tor. And it, I didn't mean to do that. Just, I just was picking them out, you know, and they all came by Tor. And they're all British writers as well. First one up, Alan Campbell, hails from Scotland. and... I don't know what they're putting the water up there in Scotland, but they can turn out some amazing writers, you know, fantasy and science fiction writers there. It is the hub of, you know, what we, this genre we like. Anyway, volume two of the Deep Gate Codex, Iron Angel. This is about, I say, Alan Campbell. And his first one in this series, just looking there, is Scar Knight. And this is what Hal Duncan says. You know, Hal Duncan, who we interviewed on the show, With undead armies, psychotic armies and exploding airships, Scar Knight is gripping, yipping yarn that which rattles along in a great pace. Tether all that to the knockout image at the heart of the novel. Deepgate, a gothic city built on a network of chains over a great abyss. And you have urban fancy at its best, Hal Duncan. And actually this one, a great cover on it. It's got this like eerie blue fog misted picture on the front. And it look like all kind of ships, all as if just kind of crashed. And just on different angles, and but actually, it seems like there's a city in there as well, and there's lights on in the ship, and people like live in this kind of this area. And there's an air kind of airship over in the distance. Give you a little blurb on the back: the chain city of Deepgate is now in ruins, and the Spine Militia are trying to halt the exodus of the panicking citizens of, with brutal force. Rachel and the angel Dill are dragged off to the temple torture chambers, but strange things start to happen as a foul red mist rises from the abyss beneath the city. Cataclysmic events have left the gates to the hell unguarded, and powerful forces are ready to seize their opportunity. Cuspinol, god of brine and fog, is coming to hunt down his brother's murderers, and his foul fog-wreathed skyship has already reached Sandport, bringing its own version of hell. By now, Rachel just wants to keep her young companion alive, escaping from the prison with their enemies closing in on all sides. They are forced to undertake a perilous journey across the dead sands towards the distant lands of Pandemira and Corilius. But the battlefields of Corilius are fated to become the focus for a clash of powers, with men and gods and slaves all forced into a desperate alliance. And whoever wins, it is bad news for everyone, except for the growing armies of the Abyss. Praise for Alan Campbell, a visually rich, satisfying dark tale of a city of chains, ancient bloodlust and unshakable loyalty. Trudy Canavan. Price starts $7.99. Next one up is Tony Ballantyne. And this is the hardback version, if you remember a couple of weeks ago or a few, about a month ago. I mentioned I got the uncorrected proof copy of Tony Ballantyne's Twisted Metal. This is the f- the hardback one there. And the Robot Wars were just the beginning. And this is the one, that, if you remember, I said you know, it was great. You know, robot Terminator creature on the front there. And it's all great PR marketing by tour. It's all kind of hitting on the right time when you know the new Terminator film comes out. This cover is... Almost, you know, <laughs> identical to them kind of robots. It's got more of the, the kind of the shrike. You know, the um, Dan Simmons novel. You know, it's got more of the kind of shrikey, pointy metal bits sticking out of him. This is priced at 16 hardback. Twisted minds, twisted souls, and twisted metal. The tagline on the back is, An idea twisted in the forgotten past is spreading across the surface of Penrose. It will lead to war, betrayal, and destruction. Penrose, a world of intelligent robots who have forgotten their own past, a world where all metal, even that of their own wire-based minds, is fought over, a valuable resource to be reused and recycled. Now full-scale war looms as the soldiers of the Artemis sweep across the continent of Shul, killing and converting every robot to their Stark philosophy. Only the robots of Turing City stand in their way. Robots who believe they are something more than metal. Carell is one such robot, or is he? Sucked into inevitable violence and destruction, Carell finds himself conscripted into the Artemisian army and sent towards the frozen kingdoms of the north and towards the truth about the legendary Book of Robots, a text which may finally explain the real history of the strange world and perhaps his own. In a completely alien but brilliantly realized landscape. Here is a powerful story, superb action, barbaric cruelty, and intense emotional impact. Twisted Metal, Tony Ballantyne, sixteen ninety nine coming in at how many pages? It's about three sixty. So this one I think, you know, it's it's you're gonna kinda see this one quite a lot on the shelves, you know, there's I think there's a nice big campaign behind this one to push this one. Tony Ballantyne lives in Oldham with his wife and two children. He is the author of the Recursion Trilogy, as well as many acclaimed short stories that have been published in magazines and anthologies around the world. With this, his fourth novel, he begins an exciting new series. So yes, I think tours right behind this one, pushing this all away. Tony Ballantyne, Twisted Metal. Next up, another hardback, Neil Asher, Shadow of the Scorpion. And this one comes in at $17.99. It's funny that. Pound for that one. $16.99 for Twisted Metal. Bigger hardback book than this one. But Neil Asher's comes in at $17.99. Great cover on the front of this, mind you. Whoever Neil Asher's got for designing these pictures on all these kind of new books he's coming out. It's just, it's like some sort of metal droid, scorpion, robot-y looking thing, and it just looks evil as hell coming out of some kind of red, swirling, vortex mass explosion. Looks amazing. An Agent Cormac novel. Neil doesn't do combat droids. He does razor-edge combat droids with attitude. John Courtney Grimwood. This one comes in at 291 pages. Race to adulthood during the end of the war between the human party and the vicious anthropoid race, the Pradar, Ian McCormack is haunted by childhood memories of a sinister scorpion-shaped war drone and the burden of losses he doesn't remember. In the years following the war, he signs up with the Earth's central security and is sent out to either restore or simply maintain order on worlds devastated by the Pradao bombardment. There he discovers that though the old enemy remains as murderous as ever, it is not anywhere near as perfidious or dangerous as some of his fellow humans, some of them even closer to him than he would like. Amidst the ruins of wartime genocide, he discovers in himself the cold capacity for violence... Learn some horrible truths about his own past and, set upon a course of vengeance, tries merely to stay alive. Neil Asher, The Shadow of the Scorpion. 17 is the last new titles. Pick one, if I was going to pick one, I'd probably go for Tony Baldine's Twisted Metal as kind of the one I would plumb for out of them three with the hard-earned pocket money. <laughs> so that is new titles. And so that is the end of Starship Sofa, show number 83. I hope you've enjoyed it. Now this is the time when, come on gentlemen and ladies, dig into your pockets there and cough up for Starship Sofa. £2.50 for the monthly donations gets you the sanatorium show. Because I didn't mention it on last week's show, anyone that donates, I'm going to extend it a week there now, so anyone that donates in this last final week gets the sanatorium shows forever. So you can donate any amount. You'll get all the passwords and that'll be it. You'll be signed up to the sanatorium show. Like I say, I didn't mention it last week, you know, because that would have been the last week to mention it. And just because of the Michael Bishop story, I do not want to really hit on with that kind of thing over there. So I'm leaving it open for an extra week. So if you want to dive into the sanatorium shows, just donate any amount and that gets you them. Once that's gone, you can still sign up to the Starship So Sanatorium Shows. £2.50 a month, £2.50 a month, and you get this every week. Come on, man. You can't get better than that. So that is it. Starship Sova, 83, put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Catch me over at the Sofa Notes this week, where we have fantastic Larry Santuro, Jeremiah Talbot, and Damien Walter. You know, I'm getting some lovely feedback for that show. And like I say, it, and it is a nice compliment to this show. And I'm so glad I have really kind of separated them so they don't kind of dilute each other. Do you know, if you, if you want to go over there and listen to kind of the news and chat about SF literature and about anything science fiction, literature orientated, you know, the, the, mag- the death of the magazines or anything like that, you know, Heinlein, we've been talking about everything these past few weeks. Pop over there and subscribe to... Sofa North. You can come to the Starship Sova website, you can follow the links from there or just in iTunes. I would love to see you over there, it is a really good show. Until next week, I'd just like to say, good night from me.
0: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Next exciting installment of Stretching Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated.
5: Shuttle set for us. Air lock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.